This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us as we close this service this morning and open your word. May you speak to us. May you speak to us about your desire to heal, about your desire to to have us be amazed by who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing in our series in Mark called Amazed, and we are in chapter 5 this morning, and I want to read this amazing little story of two miracles, beginning with verse 21. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out of him, and he turned around to the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? Then Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembled with fear and said the whole truth and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to him, Don't be afraid, just believe. And he did not let and he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. And after he put them out, he took the children's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went into the child. And he took her by the hand and said, Little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this they were completely astonished, amazed. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, And he told them to give her something to eat. I love how practical Jesus is. Give her something to eat. She's hungry. 
This is such a wonderful story, and there's so much here, but let's just look at a couple of things. And to really understand the story, I need to tell you about a couple of cultural pieces that will explain uh, a bit of what's going on here. And the first has to do with the laws in Leviticus around clean and unclean. Now, these laws, if you read them in Leviticus about clean and unclean, kind of read like gibberish to our modern minds. They don't make a lot of sense to us. And a lot of theologians have studied them, and a lot of people have studied them and attempted to try to understand why God asked the people uh, to follow these laws and regulations. And, and it's difficult, actually. Some think it's about hygiene. Some think it's about health. Some thought it was about... But let me reduce it down very, very simplified. And I know Pastor Steve has talked about a study in the book of Leviticus, which I would love because I love the Old Testament and love understanding the purpose of books like that. But let me just say that at the, the central message of God conveyed by this system is that God is holy and we are not. I mean, that's the central message of it. And uncleanness was not the same as sin because uncleanness involved factors that were beyond human control. There was a strong analogy, however, between uh, sin and uncleanness. Both of them left someone unable to, in a sense, what we, be in the presence of God, be in the temple, uh, you know, be in the synagogue, participate in worship and teaching. It, would, it wouldn't allow them to be, not be a part of the sacrificial system. It wouldn't have allowed them to be a part of that. Um, but, um, and actually, the sin offering, or probably more aptly named the purification offering, um, took care of both sin and ritual impurity. Um, but they were different. One happened just as a result of being human. So in the category that we call ritual uncleanness, there were four things. There were skin diseases, there were discharges of bodily fluids, there was touching something dead or eating unclean foods. Now, the last two were something you could choose to avoid, but the first two just happened in the course of life. They just were part of being human. Um, and this is what makes these laws so hard to understand. And in our minds, it feels unfair in a sense. Um, but let me assure you that in every circumstance of ritual uncleanness, there was a way to be purified and to be brought back into a state of cleanness, which was, by the way, a person's normal state. They were clean before God because of the Day of Atonement, by the way. And, and so they were, it could bring you back into relationship with God. This is what Jesus did in the final sacrifice on the cross. His blood once for all washed us clean. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So we live without the stigma of ritual uncleanness because of Jesus. But the woman in our story did not. Now, another part of understanding this story is understanding a woman's place in the first century culture. And the family was the basic unit of, in all cultures, uh, in society, in Jesus' day. And while there's a lot we could say about this, let me just talk for a moment about the role of women in public. Uh, women were to be essentially unobserved or unseen by men in public. 
Um, and, and this may, again, sound just ludicrous to our modern minds, but I want you to understand that partially it was a protection for women. Uh, so, for instance, married women often wore a veil. Now, not all of them did. Usually veils were kind of something done by those that had more status or were richer, uh, you know, more well-to-do, um, everyday kind of blue-collar families, women in those families didn't necessarily go about with a veil. But the idea behind it was that it it protected them. It said this is a married woman in subordination to her husband. It was a symbol of modesty and virtue. It was kind of a protection. But since veils weren't used by all women, most women who went out in public sought not to be seen. So they might walk with their head down. They wouldn't want people, uh, they wouldn't want particularly men to be looking at them. And men, especially Jewish men, were actually taught not to look at a married woman uh, or to converse with women in public. In fact, the, the Jewish oral law, not the scriptures, but the Jewish oral law, stated, let no one talk with a woman in the street, no, not even with one's own wife. Now, some of you men are thinking, that, well, that's not a bad deal. But don't go there. Don't go there. Okay? Don't go there. Um, so it would have been highly unusual for a man, for a male, particularly a rabbi, a teacher, a religious teacher, to have a conversation with a woman in public. So do you have those two things down? Because they're part of what makes this story so amazing. So the account begins with a Jewish official. Um, and probably a religious official, again, very interesting, who obviously believes, in fact, has substantial faith in Jesus. And he comes and he asks Jesus to heal his child. And his posture with the request of, is one of great humility and submission. He throws himself at, the man's, at Jesus' feet. He says, my little daughter is dying. Um, now, we're going to come to understand that she's actually 12 years old as the story ends, which is interesting because, again, another cultural piece is that male children were far more important than female children. And it wasn't that parents in Jesus' day didn't love all their children, delight in all their children. I'm sure many of them did. But in terms of societal value, males had a higher value than females. And part of that had to do with the fact that eventually your daughter would be given in marriage and become part of another family. She wouldn't remain in your family. And girls in that day would have married at around somewhere between 14 and 18 years of age. And so this was a daughter he might only have for a couple more years. And yet, and, and so the crowd around him may have completely understood if he was here asking for the healing of his son. But to ask with such passion for the healing of this daughter uh, was amazing. My little girl is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she may be healed and lived. And Jesus went with him. And then all of a sudden, there's kind of, and this was a literary thing that often was done, there's a story inside a story. And the next story that we're told by Mark, uh, also he gives us some information about this woman before we meet her. Uh, we're told, first of all, that she's had an ongoing menstrual bleeding for 12 years. And this would have made her ritually unclean for 12 years. So she could not participate in anything in the temple. She couldn't enter the temple. And anyone who touched her also became ritually unclean. So this meant that if she had any close relationship with a man, he was sure to find out about the bleeding 
and then he would not want to be with her. If she had been married, she probably had been divorced by her husband, or perhaps she'd never been able to be married uh, as a result of this bleeding. In addition, any close relationship with women would probably, because she didn't have the ability to control it in the same way, she didn't have the same hygiene-type products that we have today, and so even close friends would have found out that she was unclean. So literally, for 12 years, this woman had led a very, very lonely life. Very lonely life. Little status without the support of a man and this ongoing ritual uncleanness that kept her away from other people. And Mark goes on to tell us that she'd suffered a great deal as a result of this, that she'd gone to doctors, spent all that she had, and instead of getting better, she'd gotten worse. So here she is, and then I love the little line that says, and she heard about Jesus. I love that. What did she hear about him that would be so compelling that she would risk coming out into a crowd, something that very few women did anyway, and then touching this man and potentially making him unclean as well? What was it that caught her attention? Was it that he was willing to confront unclean spirits? In the passage just before this, was it that he had healed, touched lepers? Was it that he was accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners? Was it that he'd healed someone on the Sabbath and gotten in trouble for it? We don't know. But something made her take the amazing risk of entering a crowd where she might be identified, pointed at, and have everyone move away from her. And she thinks, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And so she moves in close enough, low, to avoid any kind of identification, and she catches just the hem of his garment, and immediately, I mean, she's known what it's like to bleed for 12 years, and she knows when it stops, and she's healed, and she's healed. And I think she probably thought, okay, now just back away slowly, (laughs) and go, you're healed. Instead, Jesus says, who touched me? And have you ever been in a really big crowd and everybody's jostling up against everybody? And the disciples look at him like, are you crazy? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. What do you mind who touched me? But Jesus says he knows that power has gone out. And so he says, who did it? He's looking for her. Now, notice he doesn't expose her. I'm assuming I don't know for sure that he knew who it was but he invites her to identify herself, um, to make herself known to him. He pauses in the middle of his hurry to to get to Jairus' daughter to have an encounter with this woman. And she comes before him. She's trembling. She's literally shaking, terrified. Terrified, I assume, because she feels exposed. And I don't know what it was, whether it was just Jesus' presence because I've seen this happen sometimes as a counselor, but her whole story just tumbles out in front of everybody, which was an amazing thing. Her whole story just tumbles out of her. She exposes her shame and her identify as formerly unclean. And what does Jesus say to her? He just says, you're healed. Your faith has made you whole, has healed you. Go in peace. Now, I have to assume at this moment that Jairus and those that are with him are a bit unnerved by what's going on. 
they are, you know, I'm sure they're troubled by Jesus' distraction for a moment um, because there's such urgency behind his request to come and heal his dying daughter. Every second counts here. Every moment puts her closer to peril and closer to, and him closer to her loss. So why would Jesus pause in response to the urgent and attend to someone who's been bleeding for 12 years? Couldn't she have waited another hour, perhaps another day? What, why would he pause and do this? Well, these miracles are amazing for several reasons, but let me leave you with three here very quickly. Number one, I want you to understand that Jesus took time, energy, and focus to heal people that many would have considered unimportant. Others would have said, why heal that person? They have no importance. They have no status in society. Why take time with people that are on the fringes, outcasts? But Jesus doesn't see it like that. The second thing we learn in this story is that sometimes Jesus' priorities are different than ours. The urgent is postponed by something that we think could have waited. And yet even that delay allows for Jesus to invite Jairus to increase his faith. He already has faith that Jesus can heal his daughter, but can he heal her if she dies? And the third thing, the last thing I want to point out is that one of these healings is done because of an advocate. Jairus was an amazing advocate for his little daughter, but the woman with the hemorrhage comes with no one advocating for her. Jesus healed one female in response to the person who advocated for her, her father. And like the paralytic, remember Pastor Steve's story of the paralytic whose friends bring him to Jesus? And Jesus, seeing his friend's faith, we don't even know if the man wanted to go, but seeing his friend's faith heals him. Jesus heals because of the advocate. But in the case of this woman, she has no advocate. An advocate is a powerful thing, especially if you feel powerless. Let me quickly tell you a personal and a historical illustration of this. So one Friday evening or one week, uh, I think it would have been over a year ago now, uh, Kimmy Rawson, my niece, uh, invited me to go see the movie Hidden Figures. And I, uh, I, I was very excited to see it, really wanted to go, so I... Uh, finished with my last counseling clients of the day, drove straight to the theater where she was waiting with the tickets, and it had just come out, so it was a pretty full theater. Now, if you've not seen the movie, I want to tell you, give you some context here. Hidden Figures is the story of three African-American female mathematicians who worked as human computers. So you've got you to change your thinking, because I say computer, what do you think? Yeah, so, yeah, laptop, exactly, yeah. These are people who did computations, okay? So they were human computers. And they worked in the gender and racially segregated Langley Research Center in Virginia in 1961. Uh, They were really focused on John Glenn's launch to orbit the moon. 
And the story centers on Catherine Goebel, uh, who works with a unit that solves a lot of the coordinates for the launch and landing, and it really centers on her story, but it also tells the story of Mary Jackson, who became the first female engineer at NASA, and Dorothy Vaughn, who eventually retrains her entire group of uh, African-American computers, women who did computations, uh, and rises to supervise the programming department that has just installed the first and new IBM computer that was about the size of the stage, I might add, okay? So, and if you haven't seen this movie, I'm here to tell you, it is a Christmas family must-see. Watch it together, and you can all thank me for it later. Okay. By the way, several weeks later, I watched the movie with Mark and Carrie Peoples because of Mark's incredible passion for mathematics and analytical geometry and all those kinds of things. And so we were watching it, and it was a little over the heads of most of the girls, but Millie kind of hung in with most of the movie. And she walked into the room, and I was explaining to her this idea. I said, Millie, this was before people had computers. And she looked at me with rather a confused look on her face and said, you mean they only had tablets? And I have to say, I completely understood what she... Because in her world, that, who cares if you have a computer? Do you have a tablet? Do you have a phone? It all works, you know? So back to the theater, Friday night. It's engaging. It's entertaining. It was done so well. And then there's this part in the movie where the Space Task Force, a group that's figuring out the launching and landing coordinates for John Glenn's flight, um, kind of come to a stalemate. They, and they need... Uh, another mathematical uh, computing person to help. This group is made up of 50 mathematical engineers headed by a man named Al Harrison, who's played by Kevin Costner. And they need this additional person. And someone says, the person you need is actually down in the colored group uh, uh, of women and because of her amazing ability in analytical geometry. So someone goes and gets Catherine Goebel and brings her up to this group. She walks into this huge room with 50 Caucasian male engineers, and she's going to work in this department. And she's not received well. First of all, they bring in a separate coffee pot, so she cannot drink out of their percolator, and they put the sign coloreds only on it. So that's one of the... They're cold. They're distant. Uh, She is not treated well uh, in the department. But when they need to solve this very difficult computation around the launch coordinates, she ends up solving the problem, earning favor uh, with Al Harrison, her superior. But he's noticing something. His office sits and overlooks the floor where all of these men and one woman is working, And he notices that there's times during the day when she's not at her desk, and it begins to bug him. And these breaks seem to happen several times a day and last quite a while. Well, we're watching the movie, so we know that what she's doing is she discovered that the Caucasian women in the building will not allow her to use the women's restroom in that building. So she has to make the trek half a mile across the campus to use the colored women's restroom in the building where she used to work. And she has to do this several times a day, half a mile. And the movie depicts her taking a stack of her work with her, working all the way over there, working in the bathroom, and then working all the way back so she can keep up with her workload. But Al Harrison begins to notice that she's gone. And so she does this, by the way, rain or shine. And one particular day, it's in high heels, I might add, and 
in one particular day, it's raining very hard, very hard. And when she walks back into this room, she looks like a drowned rat. And he's a little bit peeved. And so literally the conversation, uh, he asked her where she's been, and she says, I went to the restroom. And he says, to the bathroom for 40 minutes a day? What do you do in there? We're T minus zero here, and I've put a lot of faith in you. And Catherine kind of hangs her head, and she says, there's no bathroom for me here. He says, what do you mean there's no bathroom for you here? And she says, there are no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. And I can't use one of the handing bikes. So picture that, Mr. Harrison, my uniform, what she had been told she had to wear to work. Skirt below my knees, my heels, and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay coloreds enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog day and night, living off coffee from a pot that none of you want to touch. So excuse me if I have to go to the restroom a few times a day. And then she quietly reaches into her desk, gets her purse, and walks out of a silent room, assuming, I'm sure, that she's going to be fired. What I didn't expect was the next scene. Took me totally by surprise. And I would have loved to play it here, but we don't have the time, and you can watch it. But it shows all of the African-American women from Catherine's old unit standing in the hallway, And then all the 50 or so white men, males who work in the department, standing on the other side. And there's Al Harrison with the biggest uh, sledgehammer I think I've ever seen, flanked by two security officers. And he is wailing on the sign that reads, Colored Women's Restroom. Until finally, it falls to the ground with a heavy clank. And it was that moment that I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'm going to burst into tears. Because something came up in me about the power of advocacy. I can't speak to being an African American or many other forms of discrimination. But as a woman in ministry, I could think of many times, many times, my 40 years in ministry, when I was in rooms with all men and there was no advocate for me as a woman. Sometimes we get a human advocate. I hope that happens to you many times in your life. But sometimes we don't. And the woman with the hemorrhage had the courage to be an advocate for herself. She initiated the miracle. And Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well. Jesus healed her. It was his power that healed her. But she had the faith to pursue and touch his robe. And I want you to understand, this wasn't just about physical healing. Her healing allowed her to rebuild her life, including connection with others, with the temple, with worship. It was a physical healing and a relational healing. She could now make the journey of restoration to the community. The barriers of shame had been removed. Now again, I hope that you experience human advocacy. I hope we can be advocates for one another.
particularly for those who sit on the fringes, who for one reason or another can't come in and be part of the community. But I also want you to know that John, in his book, his letter, said, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, or if anyone's unclean, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one that we celebrated this Christmas season. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful, full of joy that we have an advocate, that whether we experience a human advocate, which, oh, Father, I do hope that we would become advocates for one another, advocates for those on the outside, advocates for those that feel left out or undervalued. Father, just as we were yesterday, Father, and we're so grateful for those that served that were advocates for these families that we served yesterday. But Father, even when we do not have a human advocate, you come to us. Jesus, you come and you say, I will be your advocate. I will bring you back into relationship with the Father. I will place people in your life. I will come close to you. For that, Father, we are eternally grateful that you delight in us in Jesus' name. We're so grateful that you came to be part of our service today. I want to welcome the guests of those that were baptized, and so good to have you here during this Advent season. I want to bless you as you go. I also want you to know that I want to invite those elders and intercessors who want to come forward, and if you would like to stay for a few moments, and I'll join Pastor Steve today, and we will be here and available for prayer Let us take just a moment to advocate for you before the Father. Bring your needs before the Father before you go, if you would like to do that. But let me just say that I pray that you would experience the joy of Christmas, the gift of the Christ child given to bring us life through his death and resurrection. So go in peace.